Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The COVID-19 pandemic is dramatically changing how many of us work. Even the U.S. Supreme Court is working remotely, and for the first time in its history, oral arguments are being live-streamed. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Morse alumni distinguished professor of political science and law, Timothy Johnson, joins us to discuss the High Court's move to a digital platform that's making its proceedings more accessible to the public. Professor Johnson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me, Jim. In May, due to the concerns over the spreading of COVID-19, the Supreme Court, for the first time in history, allowed live audio streaming during oral arguments. What do you make of this decision? Is it simply the obvious response to the pandemic, or do you think its significance is something beyond that? You know, Jim, I've thought a lot about this question, and I think the answer is it's actually both. I mean, very clearly the justices had to do something. There were certain cases that I know we'll talk about uh, later um, that they probably needed to hear so that they could decide sooner rather than later. That is, they're time sensitive. And so this was clearly um, a good response to the pandemic. I don't know if it was the obvious response. They certainly could have used Zoom like you and I are for uh, this particular meeting. Um, but the justices have been so reticent about cameras in the courtroom that I think they believe in some sense, although I can't get in their minds, that Zoom puts them much closer to um, cameras in the courtroom. And so doing telephonic oral arguments, as many other lower courts have done and continue to do from time to time, it ended up being the solution for them. On the other hand, it does carry monumental weight because the justices have never um, held live oral arguments outside of those who show up or are able to show up in the courtroom. And so anybody who wanted to hear the arguments, except in some very specific cases, a la Bush versus Gore two decades ago, um, would have to wait now, at least until the end of the week, to hear oral arguments. The court changed that policy three or four terms ago, where they would release the argument audio at the end of each week. But it is absolutely monumental, historic, whatever word you want to use, because you and I, and I know hundreds of thousands at a minimum of other people tuned into C-SPAN or to another website to listen to those arguments and you could hear the justices for the first time in real time. Do we know if the justices still wore their robes during the proceedings or were they in sweatpants like many Americans who now work from home? So I don't know if they were in sweatpants, but I will tell you that Justice Alito in particular was asked about that question, and he gave a resounding no, he would not be in his robe. Um, and you will note um, that there was, um, on the second or third day of arguments, the flush heard round the world, where one of the justices, and none of them has fessed up, um, ended up forgetting to mute um, and we could hear a toilet flush in the background. Um, and so I think they were all as comfortable as humanly possible, just like we all probably are and should be during this time of working at home. Why did the court traditionally limit public access to oral arguments pre-COVID-19? Well, I mean, so for one thing, the courtroom is not all that big, right? We we think about the, the ivory tower uh, or the Marble Palace, as they call the Supreme Court, and it is this massive building. But the court itself, the area where the gallery can sit, is not all that huge. And in fact, if you are a member of the Supreme Court bar, that is an attorney who um, has the right and privilege to argue before the court, you can show up to any oral argument you would like and are essentially guaranteed a seat. So the public ends up standing in line for the remaining somewhere between 50 and 75 seats. So one is, it, it nothing the justices did, they just have a 
small space um, that not many people can ultimately fit in. On the other hand, um, the justices have always really tried to stay above law and politics and in and more general sense above the fray. And so what they like to do is stay out of the public eye as much as possible, not because anything nefarious is going on, but because they believe fundamentally that their anonymity allows them to make decisions in a more objective way than if they were um, seen by the public and known by the public um, anytime they walk down the streets of Washington, D.C. or any place else they might be in the United States. And so the, the limited access really is all about trying to um, keep the court um, above politics, as I said. How do you think the decision to live stream changes the court's relationship with the public? You know, I think that people were, honest to goodness, really excited to hear the oral argument uh, in real time. Now, that only that might be because the world that I live in, that I know you live in, where people are political junkies and legal junkies, um, what I call myself and others who are friends of mine, court geeks, really wanted to hear the arguments. But I think that there were a lot of people um, nationally and probably internationally who uh, ha- have probably heard some of the taped oral arguments and really wanted to hear how the justices interacted in real time. And so I think that there is some difference in the relationship with the public because the public can get a sense um, of who the justices really are as they are trying to grapple with the case. Now, as I said to the previous question, the justices worry about their legitimacy and the court's legitimacy legitimacy more generally, if something weird happens like the toilet flush or a justice asks a particularly uh, harsh question and sounds maybe mean, um, they worry that that might put a black eye on the court. The way that I've always viewed the court as a scholar and someone who just loves the law and loves the U.S. Supreme Court is I believe that these live arguments actually humanize the justices. So we can now say to ourselves and the public can say to themselves, we can hear these men and women who are the top legal minds in the world as they are literally real time grappling with with how to decide a case. That, I think, makes it easier for us to understand the difficult decisions that they have to make. That humanization brings them closer to us and probably, despite what the justices think, probably increases the legitimacy of their institution. We are talking with University of Minnesota Morse alumni distinguished professor of sociology and law, Timothy Johnson, about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to live stream oral arguments in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's talk about how the teleconferencing has changed some of the normal proceedings and traditions of the court. Instead of justices interrupting lawyers and talking over one another, questions are now taken in order of seniority. Do you think having the questioning be more structured changes how the justices approach each case? There's absolutely no doubt that that is uh, what happened here, that that uh, how they approached change. Now, we know from justices' archives that exist at the Library of Congress and elsewhere, that is former justices' papers, um, that they do from time to time prepare questions for oral argument. But it is nothing compared to what we saw during those 10 argument sessions over those 13 cases, those first two weeks in May um, of this year. Um, It was clear that at least the chief justice and the early early questioners, that is the most senior justices, that is Justice Thomas and Justice Ginsburg for sure, probably had prepared questions. It seemed as though Justice Breyer may have as well, um, because they knew when they would get asked those questions. And so they knew, therefore, that they could get in an exact question. So why not have it be prepared? Now, that said, um, the justices very clearly still played off one another. The chief justice was the timekeeper. And while he is just first among equals, he absolutely kept very clear 
time for not only how, how many questions each justice got to ask and how much time he or she spent, but how much time the attorney spent answering those questions. And so you could almost see him holding a stopwatch as he was doing so. And what would happen is there were times when an attorney would get cut off from answering a question and the next justice would come around uh, to uh, his or her turn and say, I would just like you to finish answering my colleague's question that you didn't get to finish answering. And so it absolutely did change the dynamics. Um, and you didn't have an interplay between the justices. Um, we are beginning to look at the data and there was some interrupting going on, but it was absolutely pushed uh, to the, the, the back burner, if you will, because everybody knew who was going to ask questions when. Do you think the lawyers arguing before the court had to quickly change their strategies now that they face a somewhat less confrontational court environment? Yeah, I'm sure they probably did change their strategy, right? As you suggested, maybe they were in sweatpants like the justices, maybe. But I also believe that while they did have their two minutes um, of free time that the court began at the beginning of the 2019 term back in October, that is the first two minutes with no questions from any justice, they also had to change their strategy because the way that attorneys um, prepare for oral arguments is for this rapid fire questioning, right? The justices have over the past three decades, three and a half decades, really come to control the oral arguments. It is their arguments, not the attorney's arguments. And now that wasn't the case because they were waiting for each justice to weigh in. Um, and so while there were interruptions, they had much more freedom, if you will. So just like the justices prepared questions, it seems as though there was much more prepared statements made by the attorneys, which you are actually told not to do anymore in normal circumstances, if you will, because there are times where the justice, after those two minutes, where the justices will ask questions instantaneously and your entire script is thrown out the window. And so um, I believe they changed the strategy. And the last reason is they couldn't get a sense of when questions were going to be asked, right? At a normal oral argument pre-COVID-19, you could see a justice lean into her microphone. You could see a justice perk up and begin to ask a question. And now you knew it was Justice Thomas's or Justice Ginsburg's turn, but you didn't know when he or she might interrupt you. Justice Clarence Thomas, who is notoriously quiet on the bench, has spoken quite a bit lately. Is this surprising to you, and do you have any theories as to why Thomas has become so vocal this term? Yeah, you know, I, absolutely, it was no surprise that he was going to ask questions. Now, that said, I was on a phone call with four or five of, of my colleagues and former grad students around the country, and while we did not bet monetarily, we were all taking bets on whether he would speak or not. And my theory from the start was he would absolutely speak, because one of the keys that Justice Thomas always makes clear when people ask why he doesn't speak at oral argument is that he thinks that oral argument is meant as a time for the attorneys to be able to make their case to the court and the justices, his colleagues, that is, he calls rude from time to time, says they ask too many questions, they're long-winded, they interrupt, and that's not the way argument sessions should go. Well, as my theory goes, now that he knew he had you know, two or two and a half minutes to ask questions, and he knew that nobody would interrupt him, and he knew that once he asked that question, he would get an answer to it before another question from his next colleague, that is Justice Ginsburg, would ask, he probably felt much more comfortable speaking. And so while everybody blew up on that first Monday in May and freaked out, if you will, about him speaking, I actually wasn't surprised at all. This was the perfect environment for him to speak. And I will say that if and when the court goes back to its old ways or its, its uh, status quo ways, he will become silent again. 
Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually called in from the hospital. How did she sound? Was there any indication her hospitalization has slowed her down in any way? Yeah, I thought she sounded just fine. And so the last time I was actually at the court for um, live arguments was in December of 2018. And I remember thinking how small Justice Ginsburg looked. In fact, this time, and I was quite close to the bench, um, she looked um, like she could barely see over the bench, right? Um, And so maybe she looked frail, but all of a sudden she started asking questions. um, And she was asking them with all the force that she asked all the way back when she joined the court in 1993. She is absolutely the warrior that all of her followers think she is, right? She's now called the notorious RBG, and she has this massive following on social media. Um, she acted exactly like they would have expected her to act. And while she, while she was sitting, I'm sure, with all sorts of medical devices around her, she still was asking incredibly tough, incredibly pertinent questions. The other interesting thing, with her being in the hospital, it was absolutely clear that she knew the technology and she didn't miss a beat. There were, I know people around the country that were betting on which justice would not unmute themselves or would make some technological mistake. And many people thought, well, maybe it's Justice Ginsburg because she'll be in the hospital for the first arguments. That wasn't the case. She, as I said, didn't miss anything and asked very good questions. We are talking with University of Minnesota Morris alumni, distinguished professor of sociology and law, Timothy Johnson, about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to live stream oral arguments in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The cases attracting the most media attention, unsurprisingly, concern President Trump. Three cases will decide whether the president must turn over financial records. Chief Justice John Roberts fears a public backlash against the court if the justices appear overly partisan. How does the court seem to be approaching these cases involving the president? Yeah, well, this is a court that is a really big friend of executive power, right? And there are five justices, uh, four of whom are to the right ideologically of the chief justice, who are big friends of executive power. And several of those justices are also highly ideological. A Justice Kavanaugh or a Justice Thomas may come to mind if you think about it that way. Um, And so I think the court um, is going to approach these cases with an eye towards possibly um, um, finding in favor of the president, but I think they're going to do so with some trepidation and trying to be as careful as humanly possible. Um, Because Chief Justice Roberts' concern is not unfounded. If the court comes off as finding in favor of President Trump again and again and again, and really pushes out the power of the legislative branch to investigate in any way or of anyone else to investigate or subpoena the president, then I think the court probably will take a hit to its legitimacy and time would tell how long that would last. And so the bottom line is, There is a a pretty good possibility, at least in one of these cases, that the president wins. But I think if the court is going to go down that road, it's going to do so on very narrow grounds to try to make sure that they're not making a sweeping change to the law. What is at stake in these cases? If Trump wins, obviously, that's a blow to the congressional power to hold the president accountable. And if he loses, does that mean Trump and presidents who follow him will be subjected to partisan battles waged through endless congressional subpoenas. Yes, so I think you're right. This that if the president wins, it would be a huge blow to congressional authority, and it would be a big shift 
um, even more broadly in the separation of powers. Because traditionally, going back to the founding and looking at um, what the the Constitution Convention, the members of that convention thought about the separation of powers, they all believed that the game would be played, that is the political game would be played in the legislative arena, right? Very little is written about the, the judiciary, a little bit more is written about the executive branch, but the, the legislative branch is set out with a lot of power um, to control the nation because it would be closest to the people, if you will. Um, and so there would be a massive shift if the president wins in this case, because it wouldn't just be President Trump who wins, but as you noted, Jim, presidents in the future who would win as well. Um, and so that shift would suggest that maybe there would be endless subpoenas in the future. But I fundamentally believe that this president is different, right? There were not endless subpoenas of President Obama or President Bush or President Clinton or the first President Bush or President Reagan. There were subpoenas when there needed to be investigations. There were investigations when there was allegations of wrongdoing. And I think that we are just in a four-year time span with a president uh, who has done some things that has really polarized um, the nation and probably not just the president. We've become more polarized in general, and that has led to this fight. I don't believe, um, as a scholar of the court and the separation of powers, that the subpoenas that are being handed down um, are actually necessarily partisan in any way. Congress is just simply trying to look for the truth. But in the end, if the president wins, you need to be sure that what you wish for doesn't always come true. Because what happens is, if the president wins, then the next Democrat who gets elected to the White House can feel free to do whatever he or she would like to do as well. It's very similar, and then I'll, I'll allow you to move on to the next question. I apologize that I talk so much. It was the Republican Party that was so upset about FDR running for a third term that they get an amendment to the Constitution added to to limit presidents to two terms. And historically, Republicans wanted President Reagan to run for a third term because it was clear he probably would have won despite his health concerns, but they couldn't do so because they were the ones who had gotten that amendment into the Constitution of the United States. So in this situation, I think the president, Congress probably as well as in some sense, always have to be careful what you wish for. How do these cases involving Trump resemble Supreme Court decisions made during President Nixon's and President Clinton's terms? In both instances, the justices unanimously ruled the president had to comply with the request for records. Yeah, I think these cases should absolutely have an effect, right? The, the Nixon case... Um, it was very clear that that impeachment was on the horizon, and I think that that is very similar in this case. Um, there is case law going back to the 1920s and the 1930s about the power of Congress to investigate, and that is what the justices ultimately debated at oral argument, and I'm sure are debating about as they write these opinions. Um, and so I believe the Nixon case will have an effect, although if you listen to the questions the justices asked during the House of Representatives portion of that oral argument, it didn't seem as though there was a majority who were buying the argument that Congress or the House of Representatives that has had the authority in this particular case to be subpoenaing um, records of the president, especially those uh, that were records from before he was president. On the other hand, the Clinton versus Jones case decided in the 1990s has absolutely positively uh, or will absolutely positively be a key to this case. And while that was a civil action, a civil case, that is a private party, Paula Jones against President Clinton in that case, that case absolutely will be pivotal for the justices. And unless they want to overturn Jones versus Clinton or make a very clear distinction that civil cases are different than criminal, 
I believe that the New York subpoenas probably will stand. Now, I don't like making public predictions, but if you forced me to do so, my guess would be that the president wins the House subpoena case and he probably comes very close, if not will lose the New York subpoena case. We are talking with University of Minnesota Morris alumni, distinguished professor of sociology and law, Timothy Johnson, about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to live stream oral arguments in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. If the court sides with Trump and against Congress, what are the possible implications and ramifications of this decision where executive privilege is limiting the power of another branch of the government? The, The implications are limitless absolutely positively, and that is presidents will be able to act uh, with no limit, um, will be able to do whatever they would like to do with almost no repercussions from Congress. Now, the question will be whether or not a very conservative court would uphold that same standard for a liberal president. The answer is probably yes, because as I said to one of your previous questions, there is a majority on this court today that really, really believes in a strong a unitary executive branch of government where most of the power should lie, and they probably don't care whether that is a Democrat or a Republican president. It's all about the executive branch more generally. Another consequential case this term involves the Electoral College. What is the issue in this case, and what are the potential impacts on the 2020 election? Yeah, this case is about whether faithless electors, um, that is an elector who is pledged to a particular candidate, in this case, it would be either to Biden or to Trump, but ends up during the electoral college process voting for someone else can be punished. It turns out that while there are some states that will fine uh, faithless electors, the Constitution does not say that an elector needs to vote for whomever he or she is pledged to vote. It is a recent phenomenon, meaning only in the last half of the 20th century, going into the 21st century, that electors have been tied to particular candidates. Remember, the Electoral College was written into the Constitution by the framers as a check on the public. That is, the framers didn't trust the electorate to make the right choice all of the time. And so you had this intervening authority that could say, if the public gets it wrong, we can change our votes. I suspect that the justices um, will not allow um, those um, sanctions on faithless electors to stand. But in the end, it probably has very little implication on the 2020 elections. There have been very few faithless electors um, in the history of the Electoral College. And so this, while it seems like a really big case, probably doesn't have a huge effect. One last point on this. It is this case that allowed Frodo uh, to be brought into the oral arguments. um, And he was brought in by none other than Justice Clarence Thomas, who really said he liked the Lord of the Rings. And he said, what happens if I would vote for Frodo? And to be perfectly honest, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you couldn't vote for an imaginary figure or a fictitious character if you would like to. Are there any other cases this term that you find particularly interesting that could have consequential outcomes? Yeah, I mean, so one has already not been decided by the court, if you will. This past weekend, the justices rejected um, a a lawsuit uh, that has decided not to take or hear the case um, that was from a Pentecostal church in California that said the regulations that the California governor has put into place limiting the number of people who can be together is violative of that church's religious freedom. And a five-person majority, um, including Justice uh, Chief 
Justice Roberts said, we will not take this case against a pretty vigorous dissent written by Justice Kavanaugh and signed by Justices Gorsuch, Alito, uh, and Thomas. So that's one. Um, I would say that the Louisiana abortion law case, um, which is similar to the whole health case decided several terms ago by the court, could overturn that whole health precedent. Um, and if it does, it will make it much more difficult for women to obtain abortion on demand across the entire United States. Um, there's a case out of Montana that deals with scholarships from the state to religious schools um, and whether or not state scholarships, that is public monies, can be given to kids who want to use those monies to go to private schools. That will have major impact on the separation of church and state. There's a case uh, that the justices heard, in fact, during their uh, telephonic oral arguments on religious exemptions from discrimination lawsuits, that is firing people who may work for a religious institution or school, and whether they are exempt from things like the American with Disabilities Act. The court already upheld that standard that they are exempt, that is religious schools are exempt many, many terms ago, and, and this is a, a similar case. And then finally, um, to get into maybe some more minutia, there's Google versus Oracle, which is a case about copyrights for computer code. And then finally, um, one of the biggest political scandals to hit the East Coast uh, in a very long time, that is Bridgegate under Governor Chris Christie, um, and public corruption is a case the justices will decide. So that's just a smattering of some of the more important cases um, that, that we should uh, be watching for as, as the month of June comes to an end. Do you think the changes made to the Supreme Court proceedings during the COVID-19 pandemic are permanent or will the court go back to its old procedures? In the end, because the court moves so slowly in terms of change, and by the way, it moves so slowly that its unofficial mascot is, in fact, the turtle. That is absolutely true. And you can find um, um, icons of turtles all over the United States Supreme Court building. Um, and so given that, I think the justices will probably go back. Um, to the oral arguments, uh, quote unquote, the way that they have always been. But perhaps, and maybe sadly so, there is some probability that telephonic oral arguments will continue into the fall 2020 term because it's unclear when the pandemic will end. It's unclear when the justices will feel comfortable sitting on the bench and being in the conference room with their colleagues and having spectators in the gallery. So I suspect that it, it's possible that for the near term, they might stick with this procedure but when push comes to shove and the all clear is given, they will go back to their normal arguments. Justice Thomas will become quiet again and the justices will interrupt one another and the attorneys on a regular basis. Timothy Johnson is the Morris Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Johnson, thanks so much for joining us again on Dialogue Minnesota. It's always a pleasure, Jim. Thanks very much. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. The death of George Floyd has brought the ongoing debate over police treatment of people of color into sharp focus. Protests and civil unrest have swept across the U.S. and around the world. The Minneapolis City Council has voted to dismantle the city's police department, and similar actions are being considered elsewhere. What would the dramatic and unprecedented reform of law enforcement potentially look like? And what impact would it have on local communities? On the next Dialogue Minnesota, a conversation with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Michelle Phelps about the demands to restructure the way our communities are policed. That's all for this week. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.